Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> Whoop. Let's start again. So anyway, um, you know, I started caddying for Jay in 1978. At some point in time, we were talking about the 74 U.S. Open. And uh, I said, you know, it's funny. And I told him the story that I just told you guys about watching John Busick and then turning around from the 12th green and watching him play 16. And he says, well, I know you're not a liar. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because I played 72 holes and the only birdie I made was on 16 on Friday. No way. <laughs> so if you'd have told me any other hole, I would have known that you were full of it. He said, I played 72 <laughs> holes. The only shot, that's the only birdie I made. And I'll share an interesting story for the people that love the game. So Jay made the cut and he got paired with Johnny Miller the next day, who was a defending champ. I think he said he shot 78, which he said, by the way, wasn't that bad on that course, as you know, the massacre Wingfoot. But I didn't play well. And he said, going back to my hotel, I realized that uh, two, I learned two important things. First thing was that Johnny Miller didn't care about me. You know, I cared about impressing Johnny Miller. He was a defending champ and all that stuff. And the second thing was more important is that he wasn't supposed to care about me. I need to care about me. So we'll fast forward to the next year at Medina in 75. Jay's playing very good. I think he's within the top 15 going to the third round. And he gets paired with Nichols. So one year later, he gets to... Uh, and Jack shot 75 and Jay shot 72. And so uh, very interesting how some people get it, whatever it is. But this kid at 19 years old figured this out. And one year later, you know, beat Jack Nichols in the round that he played with them. And I think that's the interesting thing about good players is <clears throat> with all this information and track man and forces and ground forces and obliques and you know engaging the glutes and stuff and we can measure all this stuff but we couldn't measure how that kid figured out going down the Hutchison Parkway what he did wrong that day I'm swing theoried out per personally but I'm so interested in the people that play and why they're good you know because if the three of us five or six years ago went to Augusta and we sat in the bleachers on the range. We didn't know who anybody was. Okay. Now we've all been around golf our whole lives. We've seen it. And we had to figure out who the number one player in the world was. Not one of us would have said Jordan Speed. Right. Not even close. In fact, he might not have been in the top 50 just watching his swing and everything. So, and as you alluded to, you know, Scotty Scheffler. And so the, Kind of goes back to what Craig said about that. He thought he was one of them. He always told us that Craig taught him how to swing and he, or he changed his swing and Hogan taught him how to play. Because when they played at Seminole back in the 40s, when 
Hogan would go down there for the, the month before the Masters. They, they played a game where you threw $10 in the hat if you missed a fairway or missed a green. So when you play that game with Ben Hogan, you better be pretty good. Wow. And $10 was a lot of money back in the 40s. And so the year that dad won the Masters, he said he actually beat Hogan more than Hogan beat him that, in that stretch. So when he got to Augusta, <clears throat> he had a certain sense of confidence that he, he, I mean, he always said Hogan made him feel like an amateur, not personally, just, you know, how good he was. But he said that that month before Augusta, he felt like he was, he was pretty good. But, you know, dad had already finished, got to the semifinals of the PGA in 45. Yep. And, and he got beat by Nelson in the middle of Nelson's 11 in a row. And so uh, that seemed to be something that kind of just uh, stuck with him, that I must be a reasonable player if I'm going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ben Hogan and occasionally beating him, you know. Well, in 48 is when he, uh, that's probably the one in 48 where uh, dad beat Snead in 42 holes. And uh, that story is interesting because in the morning, dad shot 64 and was six up back to, can you imagine a club pro playing Tiger in the world match play and, and having him six down after, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, and then dad birdied the 19th hole in the afternoon to go seven up. And then uh, Snead played the next 17 holes and eight under. To, so now they're on the, have you guys heard this story? No. no I because of Hogan, he, he learned to chart his way around the course. So the, the first hole had two fairway bunkers out there, about 250. So in the qualifying and all the matches, he'd hit a one iron and a nine iron on the green. So now Snead has, you know, made this incredible comeback. And Snead takes out a driver and he said he hits this thing. Not only would he carry the bunkers by 50 yards, but it was right down the middle. This most beautiful drive you ever saw. And I'm standing there with a one iron. You know, I'm like <laughs> David and Goliath now. <clears throat> so I go back to my bag and I get my driver and I tee it up. And he says, I don't know what came over me, but I said to myself, you know what? I qualified 36 holes. Uh, I think that year he beat three major champions to get to Snead. You know, I made it this far with the great Sam Snead. I'm going to stick to my game plan. So he went back and put the driver back, got the one iron, one iron, nine iron, 20 feet. And he said, Sam played the most beautiful pitch shot you ever saw, about three feet from the hole. And back then they played stymies. And by sheer luck, my dad missed his putt and it left Snead a stymie. He couldn't putt at the hole. So I said, what, what would you do in that instance? Uh, you know, just concede a half. He said, no, you got to make the great Sam Snead put it out sideways and then give it to him. Just to, <laughs> you got you to embarrass him a little bit. <clears throat> so they got to the 42nd hole. This is another, he must've felt like he was one of them stories. So they both had about 25 footers. Snead was getting ready to putt. And my dad says, I don't think you're away. Now, how many guys would do that? <laughs> Club pros, you know? And Snead says, well, why do I have to believe you? And he said, well, you don't. Let's get a referee. So a referee came out and got a rope and uh, measured it. And dad was away by six inches. And dad made it and uh, Snead missed. And when he congratulated my dad, excuse my language, but he said, you hung my ass with that rope. <laughs> <laughs> now, many years later, I was at Bob Golby's uh, farmhouse in Belleville, Illinois. 
And I'd gotten in late at night. I was driving from Colonial to Muirfield to Caddy for Jay. And he said, I'll leave the door open for you. Here's where your room is and stuff. And I go down and have breakfast and Sam Sneed's there. Sneed's staying with Bob. So now I'm sitting there. My dad could embellish stories pretty good. So I always kind of took some of them. He was a great storyteller. So the fact is he did beat him in 42 holes. So there was a, had to be some of it was true. So I wanted to figure out if I could get Sneed's version of the story without going, hey, my dad beat you, you know, and Jay, <laughs> you know. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, uh, you know, Mr. Sneed, I, you know, my dad used to talk about the match he had with the at Norwood Hills. And, you know, he, he said how lucky he was, you know, he laid you the stymie. I kind of buttered him up a little bit, you know. And he immediately said he was the luckiest SOB he told the exact story that dad told. It was unbelievable. He said, your dad shot 63 or four. He was six up. He went through the whole thing. And then he said, he hung my ass with that rope on the 42nd hole. So the story was, and you know what? It still bothered Sneed when he was telling me the story. He said he was the luckiest SOB in that match when he laid me that, that stymie. And you could tell, see, most players that are really good, they, they'll look back on stuff and they don't like it when they lose you know and that's why they're good because it's not acceptable to them you know he's got the record have you guys played fisher's island not i have never well he's got 63 there and they have a pro-am and he shot it in the pro-am and he told us it was a cold rainy day and the next score was 73 and the next score was 76 which has to be bs so i don't know five or six years ago they got in touch with us and it was going to be the 50th anniversary of dad 63 and they wanted to know if we'd come play in the pro-am and the appearance money wasn't enough for butch so he didn't make it so um it's a joke by the way and so craig and i went and I actually played with the lady that played with them and Craig played with one of the guys. So they wanted us to speak at the dinner Sunday night. And uh, the pro said, before I introduce the Harmon brothers, I wanna uh, recognize uh, a great professional passed away uh, last winter named Gene Boric, as you guys knew from the Mets section. And he was here last year and he was talking to me in the pro shop and he saw Claude's scorecard and he said, I played that day. And so I'm listening to this, you know, and he said it was a cold, windy, rainy day. I said, well, I got that part right of dad's story. And he said, I love bad weather. I was a mutter. I always felt it was easier to shoot 72 or three on a bad day than to shoot 66 on a good day. So I played really good and I shot 73. I said, this can't go here. He's telling this story. <laughs> and I was uh, three shots ahead of the next guy. The next guy on the board was 76. <laughs> and Claude came in about 15 minutes later with a 63 and it was the greatest round of golf. I didn't witness it, but it was the greatest round of golf ever played on a course that I played the same day. <laughs> told the exact story that dad told. So now I get up to speak and I said, you know, I, I owe my father an apology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just when you think about it, what an odd couple, you know, dad, six kids, pretty gregarious club pro, you know. Uh, I think my dad revered Hogan, but I think his quirks made my dad laugh where they might have intimidated other people. 
dad actually thought a lot of the stuff that Hogan did was so quirky, was just kind of humorous, you know? And, um, and you probably have heard this story about the dinner, the, the week of the open in 59. They, I think dad's sports psychologist was Johnny Dewars and maybe Hogan's <laughs> was Jack Daniels. And uh, uh, I was eight, you know, we were all there. The boys were there and uh, having dinner. And Hogan said to dad, he said, you, you could play well this week, but you won't. And he said, how come? He said, well, you're a jolly golfer. And he, my dad said, what the hell is a jolly golfer? He said, well, you're going to get out of the car and you're going to see Mr. Williams there. To, when you get out, you're going to ask how his daughter's doing at Princeton and how his son's doing at wherever he's going to school. And dad said, well, you're right. I had those people in my junior clinic. They're part of the fabric of the club and part of the fabric of my life. That's exactly what I'm going to do. He says, well, if they're your friends, they'll leave you alone. My dad said, well, <laughs> he didn't really, you know, what's he supposed to do? So he said to Hogan, what am I supposed to do? You know, kind of jokingly. He says, keep your eyes on the ground. Because if you don't make eye contact with someone in a big crowd, they don't feel bad that you didn't say hi to them because they could see you didn't see them, you see. So dad decided to do that during the, the rounds. He didn't do it when he got out of the car and he was going to the range, but he thought, you know, that might be a good thing to do when the tournament starts. So he could have seen some people. So he did do that. And his luck would have it and life would have it. He got paired with Hogan the last round and he beat Hogan by six. So I said to dad one time, I said, you ever needle Mr. Hogan about that jolly golfer BS? He said, you know, Bill, if you're a golf pro, it would, uh, behoove you not to needle Ben Hogan about golf. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad that played with Hogan in the Masters and had a hole-in-one on number Yeah, that 12. story's been told incorrectly forever. <clears throat> and I've never um, uh, stopped people when they tell it. Because I know the gist of it is Hogan's, you know, fanatical concentration. But I was uh, at my club about four years ago out here. Wonderful club. And there was a guest at another table for some reason telling that story. And I didn't like the guy, he was a hot dog. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna jack him up on this story. I'm tired of hearing the wrong story. I'm gonna tell him the real story. And I said, you know, that's a great story, but it's not true. He said, well, I got it on, you know, really great information. I said, do you really? I said, well, I got mine on pretty good information too. <laughs> he goes, well, where'd you get yours from? I said, the guy that made the hole in one. How about that? So I'll tell you the real story. The real story is dad did make one. It was a 47 Masters. And they'd been playing every day at Seminole in the practice round. Hogan hit it on the green. It's already been substantiated that he didn't make two. I've seen a leaderboard where it said he made three, which goes along with dad's story. So Hogan never did say a word. Uh, walking across the bridge... Uh, dad picked the ball out of the hole, way back to the crowd, whatever. And Hogan two-putted, made a three. So he didn't make two and say his first time ever made a hole in one. And walking to the 13th tee, in a barely audible voice, he said, nice shot, Claude. So now wow. uh, my mom and Valerie were good friends. And uh, they had dinner that night. So... The two sports psychologists showed up, Johnny Dewars and Jack Daniels. And dad was probably one of the few people that could needle Ben. 
and he needled Hogan. He said, you know, Ben, I just made ace there on 12 today. You didn't give me much, you know. And Hogan peered over the table and he says, you were lucky to get that because your hole in one didn't help me one damn bit. Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, at Seminole, the wind blew. And dad was one of those guys with the bowed left wrist, which kept the club face shut. He beat down on the ball. He hit the ball quite low. So, uh, you know, the, the 60 that he had at Seminole was 1947. That's never been beaten. And I don't know if the, I think the 61s at Wingfoot haven't been beaten. No. I know the courses were longer and all that stuff now, but think of the equipment, the conditions, the greens. You know, they were still hitting a lot of woods in the holes back then, even though they were shorter. One of his many theories on golf was that good players start the ball where they want to. And he could really start the ball where he wanted to. He didn't hit a lot of wild shots. I mean, he hit in the rough and this and that, but he never hit one of the, you know, like a Mickelson shot. I never saw him hit a golf ball like that in my life, even on the range. One that was just off the planet. Yeah. I never really saw him hit what I would call a real, real wild shot. And he had a, such a love for the game. I never saw him get upset on a golf course, which bothered me because I was a club breaker and a club thrower and, about once a year, I still do it. And uh, I did it the other day. I was playing with some members and I threw a club and I said, I'd like to apologize to you, but I'm not because it really felt good. <laughs> I was with a guy who threw a club one day and the caddy said to him, uh, he threw it in the woods and the caddy said, I think you better throw a provisional. We may not find that one. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love stuff. And we were on one West and he had hit a drive and he had a four iron to the green and he hit the worst shot I think I've ever seen him hit. He hit a fat hook that just barely carried that bunker that's 50 yards short of the green. And he casually handed the club to the caddy like nothing happened. And I said, dad, didn't that shot bother you? And he said, did you see it? And I said, yeah. He said, did you think it was a bad shot? I said, yeah, that's the worst shot I've ever seen you hit. So he said, then I don't have to announce it then, do I? <laughs> I'll tell you who we were playing with. We were playing with Ray Mortel and Bobby Kuntz. Yeah. And he said to Ray, Ray, did you see the shot I hit? And Ray said, I did, Claude. Would you say it was a bad shot? Worst shot I've ever seen you hit. Said, Bobby Kuntz. So he said, you see, Bill, why would I have to announce it? See, I don't want to be an announcer. I want to be a golfer. <laughs> he said, now, by the time the ball landed, I'd already figured out the solution because I'm not going to hit another one today. Uh, by the time your ball would have landed with that shot, you'd have been five over after four because you'd carry it to the next three or four holes, you know. And of course, when he'd say those truthful things to me emotionally, I wanted to give him the bird, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a very interesting, that was sports psychology before sports psychology. Spieth seems I, to get over it pretty quickly. Yes. I really believe that my dad truly did love golf. And I think later in life, it was one of his uh, downfalls. He didn't have any hobbies. You know, and as you guys know, when my mother died, he started drinking. Then his arthritis was such that he couldn't play golf. This is a rather personal uh, analogy of what happened. So the two loves of his life were taken from him. And I truly believe after my mom died, if he could have played golf, his life would have been different. Because he would have been out there with you guys, you know, needling and he would, those four or five hours would have been of great, great uh, meaning to him. So they both left him at the, the same time. Why was he so good in the bunkers? You know, he, he just had a way of figuring things out. Um, 
And if you remember, he had an uncanny rhythm, which you couldn't teach. You could almost see what he was doing. It was so smooth. You know, it's like you could, you know, Eliza Ball's quick and fast. You couldn't really see it. Dad, you could kind of see it was uh, like the lazy river, you know, and he just kind of flicked that thing out. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that. He's playing a practice round with Hogan and Middlecoff at Augustine. Middlecoff was a notorious bad bunker player. So they got two playing and Middlecoff said to dad, after lunch, will you watch me hit some bunker shots? My dad said, sure. So they took a few steps and Hogan whispered to my dad, don't tell that dumb SOB anything. He may never find out. <laughs> well, <laughs> once again, my dad laughs because he thinks this is funny. He goes, well, Ben, <laughs> you know, I know that you don't teach, but when someone of uh, Carrie's ilk asked me for help, it's quite a compliment, really. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to help him, you know. So Hogan said, well, how did you become a great bunker player? <clears throat> and, uh, Dad said, well, it's funny you asked when I was born. I don't know if you guys know this. My dad was deaf in one ear. I had an ear infection and they took out my eardrum when I was a kid. And back then, if you had a bad ear, you couldn't go in the water. I don't know if that's the same thing now. So when his mother and father would take his brother and his sister to the beach, he had learned to play golf caddying at eight, eight years old at a place called Dubstred in Orlando. Yep. He just fell in love with golf. He said, I'd take my sandwich to the beach. So as everybody was swimming, I would just hit balls up and down the beach. And Hogan says, you just proved my point. You figured it out. Let that dumb SOB figure it out. <laughs> he said, you just proved my point, Claude. <laughs> Dad said, yeah, maybe he's got a, but he did give him the lesson. So, but he did have an uncanny and it was different because he didn't cut across it. He, he swung straight. He didn't like the term open the face. He liked the term lay it back. He liked the hands behind the ball, not ahead. So everything he taught back then was different. They're all doing it now, I might add. Uh, many of the great players today have a bowed left wrist, which they thought he was crazy about. And my brother Dick was almost as good as dad, and he had the same kind of weird rhythm. It was You could see it happening. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, you guys have played enough golf, and you caddied and did it. When you saw a really good player, you knew what it was. You might not be able to say why it was great, but you can just tell. They used to recognize say, it. if a guy has a good grip and a good waggle, don't bet him too much, you know, on the first yeah. He said that it, uh, it was the uh, opposite wind because it was into the wind going out. And he said Hogan hit fairway woods in the first four holes. And he never hit one outside of 25 feet. And he played those four holes and one over Wow. He said he hit the seven best shots you ever saw in your life and uh, was one over because the yips had taken over by then, I guess, or <clears throat> they were in full bloom. And, and so dad finished three, four, three in 59. Wow. Think about that. Wow. But they were downwind, which makes a big difference, but still three, four, three. I doubt anybody else finished three, four, three. A lot of guys in 2006 wish they would have finished three, four, three. Right. I think that's the interesting thing about Wingfoot because you can't make a course long anymore. So why are the last four holes so hard? When you think, or actually, I think starting on 13 is when it gets sporty. Because they're not hitting long shots into these holes. So my theory is, is that Wingfoot in a major championship set up for U.S. Open isn't a 15-round heavyweight fight. It's a 72-round. And so by that time, they're worn out. 
you know, every hole they're grinding to make pars and they're rope it dope. And by the time they get to 13 on Sunday, they're rope it doped out. You know, they just can't get to the house. Almost the history of the, every big tournament at Wingfoot, other than maybe the PGA that, uh, Davis one. hard to get to the house, you know, cause I think you're four days of just grinding. Now you guys have played a lot and I get asked this all the time. Why is Wingfoot so hard? And I said, well, I got kind of a dumb answer and you guys might agree or disagree. I said, I think it just has more hard holes on it. Another great course might have nine hard holes. I think Wingfoot has 12 or 13. You know, you'll, you'll look at number seven. Oh, that's an easy par three. Yeah. You know how small that green is. It's easy compared to the, the holes that some of you've just played. Right. But if you threw that in the middle of another round, you're up there with a six iron or something. Well, I got to hit a dead solid shot and I can't hit it more than 20 feet offline, basically. Six, six looks like it's an easily, an easy par four with the pin tucked back on the right. I always thought the pin in the front was almost harder because if you drove it in the rough, even for, for us as members, you're kind of shooting at an angle and you don't, there's yep. nothing, you, you push it eight feet or you push, pull it eight feet, you know, and you're making five or six again. So I always thought that was a subtly kind of a weird pin placement. See, all, all those years you guys caddied, you learned golf course management. So. And they get in, uh, and doing it are two different things though. Yes. Yeah, because your ego is not your amigo in golf, you know. I had about 25 footers. Sneed was getting ready to putt, and my dad says, I don't think you're away. And Sneed says, well, why do I have to believe you? And he said, well, you don't. Let's get a referee. So a referee came out and got a rope and uh, measured it. And dad was away by six inches. And dad made it, and uh, Sneed missed. And when he congratulated my dad, excuse my language, but he said, you hung my ass with that rope. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, 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 well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your indemnity. And please Marky, subscribe to the show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.